This is Orion's March, performed by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and composed by Patrick Moore. All the music you'll hear in this programme is composed by Patrick Moore and indeed the xylophone tracks are played by Patrick Moore. By the way, he's an astronomer too. Yes, that Patrick Moore. Sir Patrick Moore, who's been presenting The Sky at Night on BBC Television for an incredible 45 years. Last September, I visited Sir Patrick in his home in Selsey, a village on the Sussex coast. Just wanted to have a chat with him about his life as a stargazer. Patrick's home is a lovely old house called Farthings. I fancy for he thought, what a lovely name for the home of someone who studies distant planets, Far Things. But Patrick hasn't a clue where the name came from. Someone did tell him that the house was once owned by a Mr. Penny, who had four sons, hence Farthings. But Patrick doesn't believe that either. Whatever about the source of Farthings, Patrick Moore is very much a Sussex man. I have lived here over 30 years. I lived in Sussex almost all my life, apart from three years in Armand, not counting the war when I was flying all over the place, but I lived in this house since 1967, and I wouldn't move for anything. Mm. So you're, you're a Sussex man, basically. I'm not actually Sussex-born. I was born in Middlesex, but apart from the first six months of my life and the war and Armagh, I've always lived in Sussex. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, your background, your parents. My father was an army officer. I think he would have been a general, but he went through the First World War, collected the MC in the process, and also got very badly gassed, never really fit afterwards. Uh, he died some time ago now, in 1947. My mother, who I was very close to, she was trained as a singer in Italy before the First World War under Sabatini and Carisci, and before she finished her training, was offered a lead in an Italian grand opera. But she came back, married my father, an army officer, and never actually did it, but said that was her career. Also a very fine artist, so she, uh, she and I were very close. I didn't marry, my girl was killed in the war, mm. and therefore I didn't marry, and I was very close to my mother, mm. and she was with me until she died in 1981. And uh, your girl, you had a girl, girlfriend whom you obviously would have married, you think? Oh, most of no question about it, but yeah. the late hair hit, I had other ideas. Ah, very sad. Now, do you inherit some of the, the, that, the musical side of your, your talents from your mother, then, you suspect? Yes, quite definitely. My, her family were all very musical, and I say she was a singer. My aunt was a very fine pianist. My uncle was also a very fine actor. And uh, it comes from that side, definitely. I've never had any musical training at all. I mean, I've written quite a lot of stuff. The last thing I wrote, I may say, almost the last day I write, was a march for the band of the Royal Paratroop Brigade, called Out of the Sky. They wanted me to write a march, so I did. And I played the, I played the xylophone in the Royal Command performance once, so I've done quite a bit of it. I've had a CD out and a tape. And uh, my main weakness now, last October, my vicious spine crumbled on me. It goes back to the war, really, and it means a handicap my hand, and I can't now play the piano or the xylophone. And that, to me, is really a very great grief. Whether I ever will again, I don't know. I'm hoping it doesn't look good. Mm, well, hopefully, maybe it will. Um, you had a lot of illness yourself as a child. I did. My education was very bad in Nocturne. Um, I was due to go to Eton and Cambridge, and never made either. I took commonness from Eton by having ill, passed it, back in bed again by the crocked heart, Never made it. I got my school exams externally, had my Cambridge place ready, then the war broke out, and I could get around right then. So um, 
I said I was 18, they believed me, and I went into the RAF and flew, <laughs> that finished Cambridge. Mm. So, you, you, you had very patchy kind of formal education. Very patchy indeed. I'm not self-educated. I got all my school exams correctly. So I took, I passed common entrance, I got my school certificate matric, you couldn't earn A-levels, and just started with skin to start on my degree. I went to say the war came along. That was my fault. I could have gone, but frankly, I had to bluff my way into the RAF because I was underage and I wasn't fit either, but I got in anyway. But it was a, as a child, and I think when as one of the times you were ill, that you, you picked up this interest that you've had all your life now in the, in the stars. I remember, we're here, we can see over there an armchair. In that armchair, I was sitting when I was six years old in 1929, and by it was a bookcase. My mother was a bit interested in this kind of thing, had a few books there. I pulled out a book called The Story of the Solar System, that I still have, sat there in that chair, and read it from cover to cover. It wasn't actually a boy's book, but my reading was all right, and I, I wouldn't be hooked out of that chair till I finished it. And it all went on from there. Mm. And at what stage did you acquire a telescope, or had you one already? No. Uh, I did the right thing, borrowed binoculars, and finally I saved up and bought a telescope, but I still have a three-inch refractor. It costs £7.10. shillings. I had that when I was 11 years old. It's a very nice telescope. In fact, my first paper was published with that. Mm. And did your mother encourage this, apart from oh, having the book lying around? Oh, very much so. She most definitely did. I mean, she was not wildly interested. I said, just uh, have a few books about it, and it came from there. I just picked that particular book up. Mm. And where did you eventually... Was it after the war that you, you picked up the, the, the pursuit of astronomy as such? No. In fact, I say I got interested at a very early stage, had a bit of luck. A friend of the family was a member of the British Astronomical Association, and at the age of 11, I was elected a member. I was the youngest ever member of the BAA, and uh, I remember it well, and I went to have me greeted as a member, and exactly 50 years later to the day, I was president. Mm. <laughs> I'm still now honorary life president. Well, done, well done. And how, how did you manage to be elected at 11? Was this through poll, more or less? No. The point is this. In the BAA, which is mainly amateur, there's no actual official age limit. I was the youngest, certainly, but um, they knew I was interested and were quite happy about this. I think I think probably still I'm the youngest, I'm not sure, but there's, there's no formal qualification there. For the Royal Astronomical Society there is, of course, that came much later. And what, what avenues did that open to you to become a member of the BAA? Well, I got interested straight away, and I had my little telescope. I began looking at the moon. I published my first paper, actually, my first research paper, when I was 14. I still got that paper. I went on from there. But I say, I intended, of course, to take my science degree, but say the war came along, and I say, I went to the RAF instead. And when I came out at the end of the war, uh, well, I had been a bit knocked around, obviously, all we all are. I still had my Cambridge place, but it would have meant taking a government grant. That I wouldn't do. I preferred to stand on my own feet, so I thought I would pay my own way through. I wrote a book that caught on, another one that caught on, I never had time. So I have eight honorary degrees, no honorary. <laughs> And the book was obviously a book on, on the, the planets of the stars. The Moon, called Guide to the Moon. It's just come out again, called Patrick Moore on the Moon. came out again earlier on this year, and I think it's 14th edition. Not much of the original left, believe me. And they went out in the 1940s, don't forget. Yeah. Yes, it came out this year. We've learned a lot since then. It's actually Castle publishing one this year. I'm very glad they did. Mm -hmm. Just uh, briefly, a little bit of your, your war experiences. You, as you say, you were knocked about a bit. Oh, well, I was, I was a flyer with Bomber Commands a long time ago now. See, so I hope we don't have to go through that again. Well, I must say, at the moment, uh, we fought the Nazi Germans, the fascist Italians, and the Vichy French all at once and beat the lot, and they are now trying to hand us over to those same people. No way.
You are not a European, Catherine. You could say that. Obviously, is as you say, your 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 favourite topic. You've made an extraordinary study of the moon. Well, I've been working NASA moon mappers. I see, but they're my early early interest and still is. I'm I'm still regarded astronomically as as a moon man. I think probably because it was the first thing I ever really saw through a telescope. This is absolutely fantastic. And of course, with a fairly small telescope, you can see a great deal on the moon. And I was just hooked on it. Difficult to say just why. I simply was. I see the moon been my main subject ever since. And you, you, you ultimately went on to, as you say, to map it. I was one of a very big team, certainly. Mm -hmm. And yet the moon keeps the same face turned towards us all the time. The edge, therefore, was very foreshortened. And my job there was going around trying to map the moon's edge, which I did. And I say we got it fairly right, I think. Now, of course, we have maps of the entire moon from spacecraft. And all the work I did then is now obsolete. But it had to be done at the time. Mm -hmm. It was quite a difficult task, I presume, given the knowledge you had then. It was quite difficult, believe me. I see, the other side of the moon was totally unknown. We had to try and cure it in. And I was very glad, when the Russians got the first pictures back of the moon's far side from a spacecraft in 1959, they did use my charts to map up the near and the far sides, and I think I got most of it right. And, and how, does one, how does one actually map a, a, a body so far away in, in terms of scale? And oh, the moon's close. The moon's a mere quarter of a million miles right on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, um, what we were doing, we were photographing and actually observing, filling in details, and um, taking what advantage we could. We got most of it right. And what, basically, what, what, we, what did you find out about the moon? I mean, it's, it's full of these, what, what are called seas, but Wait, they're not... Uh, the seas are not seas. I mean, there's no water there. I know it has been. The moons be airless and waterless, and the seas are old lava plains, and the craters there, we now know when they by meteoric impact, things hitting the moon from outer space, and the moon is covered with craters. We are mapping those. Point being, you see, when the idea came of sending probes there, men there, obviously you've got to have the best maps you can. There were a very large team that were doing that, and I was a very junior member of it. Mm -hmm. A very junior member, I can show you.
you you make the point, of course, when you uh, when you're talking about the moon, we should I suppose have begun with the, the planet we are on. That in in the scheme of things, this this lump of, of rock we're sitting on is is really not not a very important. Uh, it's totally so, unimportant. One sand grain of the Sahara. Oh no, we're not important. Neither is our sun. Neither is our galaxy. We are a very unimportant part of the universe, but of course, very important to ourselves. I'm sure there's plenty of life up there, but it's a long, long way away, and whether we'll ever contact it, I know not. Mm. And you say neither is our sun or our galaxy important? Oh, no. Our galaxy, a hundred thousand million stars. We can see a thousand million galaxies, some of them are much larger than ours. So we're very unimportant, even on that scale. This, this to, to the lay person like me, this is, this is what I find almost... Uh, in, incomprehensible or unimaginable. I remember you reading somewhere where the, you said if you if you represent the distance from sun to earth as an inch, the nearest star four miles away, four miles away, yes, and that, and the Andromeda galaxy would be two million miles away. I mean, it's all. It's, it, is, is, does that ever cease to amaze you? You can't take it in. Nobody can do so. And we merely accept these figures, but nobody can understand them. I, mean, I can't imagine even a million miles. I don't know if you can. I certainly can't. I can't imagine it. I mean, the sun is 93 million miles away, and that's astronomically very close, but I can't picture it. I don't think anybody can. Mm. Does, does this affect your, um, how shall I say, maybe your, your thinking on, on creation or religion or whatever, the, the, the vastness of it? There are three things I never discuss in public. Football, politics, <laughs> and religion. <laughs> All right. Point, point, point taken. I, I'm a mere cricketer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Spindler. And not, not no mean one, I'm told. Ah, well, because I can't play now. Mm. Oh, I've, I've enjoyed my cricket. Mm. I never played serious cricket. My, my bowling was stand-up. I'm no batsman. I'm a poor field, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. You, you took nine wickets one time in a match, did you? I got three, uh, nine wickets three times. I never got all ten. Mm. I say that. My two ambitions are to get all ten innings. I got nine three times. And to make a hundred runs in the season, which I never achieved. <laughs> better than the season. The betting at the dizzy heights of number 11. <laughs> well, you can't have everything. You can't have everything. Um, just t t talk to me again about this, this unimportant sun. So, I mean, wh what, what do we know about the sun? We know a great deal about the sun now. Uh, we know, for example, how it's shining. It's not burning in the matter of a cold fire. It's using nuclear energy. And, of course, it's losing weight. Listen. Between those two claps of my hand, the sun lost four million tons. So the sun weighs a good deal less now than it did when we started talking today. But the, don't worry, there's plenty left. It'll go on for several thousand million years yet, so don't panic. <laughs> I'm relieved hearing that. Panic, huh? uh, and, and in terms of its, its, its heat, its temperature? Well, the surface temperature below 6,000 degrees, but near the middle, where its energy being produced, roughly 15 million degrees. Quite inconceivable. And that's where the sun is producing its energy. And and what it is, it's not solid, it's it's basically gas, isn't it? Uh, it's gas, but very, very dense in the middle. It is critical energy by, by nuclear transformations. Inside the sun, there's a great deal of hydrogen. And in the middle there, hydrogen is banging together to build up atoms of a gas called helium. It takes four bits of hydrogen to make one bit of helium. Every time that happens, a little energy is set free, a little weight's lost. It's that energy that makes the sun shine. And if it didn't, well, we wouldn't be around. Well, about for the earth, he wouldn't have been here. After all, the earth was formed about four and a half thousand million years ago from a cloud of material around the young sun, so but for the sun, we wouldn't be here at all. We know the earth was formed about four and a half thousand million years ago. I was away at the time. 
Were you bowling at, <laughs> batting at number 11 at the time, maybe? <laughs> um, um, and this is, you're subscribed to the, the Big Bang Theory? So far as I can see, yes. Remember, I'm not a cosmologist, I'm a lunar, I'm a lunar mapper, mm. but all the evidence indicates that way. But again, you see, we're stuck. If the Big Bang happened, well, what happened before that? There was no before. Time began at the same moment. And you can't put that into words. Otherwise, you've got to go back in further. You can't do that either. And no one could put that into plain English. Even Einstein couldn't, and I know because I asked him. Well, I'll come back to, to Einstein <laughs> and, and others in, in, in a moment. But you, you can, you did, you did this, the, the Earth's beginning, what was it, four and a half? Four and a half thousand billion years ago. This is through radioactive, radiocarbon? All, all kinds of avenues of research, they all lead to the same thing. I mean, mm. Give or take a few million years either way. <laughs> there was a wonderful uh, quote from a, or a, an instance you cited in one of your books before by Archbishop Usher in 1654, oh, yes. who claimed the world began at 9 a.m. on the 26th of October. 4004 BC. Summertime, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he added up the ages of the patriarchs and made other totally irrelevant, irrelevant calculations. People accepted that for some time. Mars, they think, will be the next next planet to be explored. I think Mars must be the next. It's less unlike the Earth than any other world. It's fairly close to us on the astronomical scale. And really, the only world we should be close to is not even possible. I mean, Venus is closer, but quite hopeless. Mer so is Mercury. And beyond that, the other planet's too cold, so it's got to be Mars, I think. And if all goes well, I think we may have Martian bases by the air wall in about 20 or 30 years' time. Mm. I think it's got to be Mars. Will we meet Martians? I fear not. No little green men. There may be some life there. Very primitive single-celled things, but nothing to advance as a blade of grass. No, no Martians, I'm afraid. I'd love to meet them. I'm sure they're not there. No canals, either. And you described Venus as a disaster, is it? Quite hopeless. About the same size as the Earth, but on the other hand, the surface temperature is nearly 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmospheric pressure is about 99 the pressure in this room now, the atmosphere is made up chiefly of choking carbon dioxide, and the clouds are rich in sulfuric acid. Therefore, go there, you'll be fried, poisoned, squashed, and corroded, and I don't recommend it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, certainly wouldn't hit a hundred runs there. I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> so, I mean, and you say the further we go, then Mercury and beyond, the, 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 the less, well, the more Mercury, hostile the environment. Mercury is quite hopeless, no atmosphere there, very near the sun. And beyond, the giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, well, they're made up of gas. They're gaseous planets, and they're very, very cold and very massive. So I think in our solar system, the only world we can really colonise at the moment 
well, the moon and Mars. Jupiter has got some big satellites, Saturn has one, eventually it might be so, but it's too far. Now, in our own time, I think Mars is the only possibility. Hmm. Why should we bother, though, then? Why should we even bother even trying to, to, to land on Mars? We don't know what we're going to find there. Remember, I think it was Faraday who said, when asked about this newfangled science of electricity, what's the good of it? He said, well, madam, what's the good of a newborn baby? Touché, touché. Now, um, you said earlier in the interview that we think, I suppose, as I said, well, the Earth is very important to us, and then all these, these planets were, which are millions and millions of miles away from us, but yet they're, they're equally unimportant in, in the vast scale of things. They are indeed. After all, say, 100,000 million stars in our galaxy, we can see a 1,000 million galaxies. And that's only part of them, so we're a very, very tiny thing. We can't comprehend the scale of the universe at all. It's, it's bigger than we can possibly conceive. And, and at the same time, space is very sparsely populated. Well, in a way it is. I've tended there, but space is very big, don't forget. If you say, how big is space? Well, how do you answer that one? Either space is finite, or else it's not. If it's finite, then what's outside it? Say nothing, that's really begging the question. If it's infinite, well, if that's nothing, it goes on forever, and you can't do it. Therefore, it's a hopeless question. It's a multi-dimensional question, and I'm a three-dimensional creature, which is another way of saying I haven't a clue. And so it, it's very unlikely, then, that there would be any great major collisions if, if there's that much room out there and so few things, so few well, heavenly certainly, bodies. Certainly, our Earth could be hit. Going around the sun, there are things called meteoroids, asteroids and comets, and we could be hit. And there's fair evidence about 65 million years ago, we were hit by a fairly large thing, up so much dust, it changed the climate and wiped out the dinosaurs, and that could happen. They are, we are not immune. We could be hit by something, no question about that. Earlier on also you mentioned uh, that, that you had um, spoken with Einstein. Yes. Um, what are your memories of him? I met him only once. It was in early 1940, as I joined the RAF, I must admit I was underage, and went out to learn how to fly, and they trained us in Canada. I went down to New York on a week's leave there, invited a scientific thing, and I met Einstein there for one and only time. I'm very glad I did. Mm. Fascinating man, quite unworldly, just as you would imagine him, I think. Mm. And, of course, the greatest brains in Newton, I suppose. Who, for you, then, were, were, are the, the great brains or the great, the great uh, discoverers of, that have helped to build up the picture of the, the planets that we have. In now or in, in past time? Well, both. Well, obviously Newton, obviously Halley, I think, uh, obviously well, in our modern times, Einstein, and the great observers, Herschel, Bradley, and so on. There are plenty of them. Mm. And has, has any particular one influenced you more than others? In my own time, those I've met, you mean, mm. difficult to say. I think, looking back in history, the man I'd like to have met was Edmund Halley of Comet fame, the second astronomer royal, a very jovial kind of person. I think he did a great deal of work. And his last act on Earth was to call for a glass of wine and drink it. <laughs> Admirable. Was he a cricketer? Um, to your best of your knowledge? Before, well, he died in 17, 1742, a little before cricket. Oh. It was just about starting then. <laughs>
Now, Patrick, we've made a slight detour to your little observatory here. Tell us what you have here. Would you? Well, this is what's called a 15-inch reflector. The main motor is 15 inches across. As you can see, it looks old-fashioned. It's not, in fact. It just suits me. Wouldn't suit people like Owen at all, his astrophysicist, but I'm a lunar and planetary observer, and it's just right for me. Mm. And I've made many observations with this. How, how, how much time do you spend here? Well, before my, before I, when I was able to, up to last year, well, a great deal. I mean, I'm moon on planets every, every night, I suppose, but now it's much more difficult, unfortunately. Mm. Now, to the, to the layman, can you explain exactly what? I can. What is here? What can we can see? As you can see, it's a wooden cube. At the bottom there is a mirror. Mm -hmm. Then there are the 15 inches across. The light goes down the tube and strikes that mirror. So we take it back up the tube onto a second mirror, which is here. Deflect into the side here. Let him put your eye or your camera. Look there, and you see what through there. You see what I mean? Look through there. Oh, you look through here. Yes. And you see what I mean? You put your eye or your camera. Oh yes. Oh wonderful. Yeah, very ordinary, very conventional telescope called a Newtonian, designed first made by Sir Isaac Newton, and it's, uh, it works very well. It was a drive, of course, and this is just suited for my kind of work. Yeah, see, in my innocence, in my ignorance, I would have thought you'd look through the, the other end of the telescope. Well, my second telescope, you do. This is what's called a reflector, which is used in mirrors, not lenses. Hmm. This is a reflecting telescope, say a Newtonian, and that's how it works. It's driven, of course, it follows the sky, but the motor drives it round. You want to. And there you are, it's a, it's a very and good And it has just this, this aperture in your little... Uh, Observatory here. I mean, is, it, is that is that a fixed aperture? You, you... Oh no! At the end, you open the roof up there, the windows there, and the entire thing goes round. Listen. Hmm. Open, it, open it up for me there. Do I see? Open up the roof there. Oh, right. Well, I won't open it up because it's glittering, but that's how you look at the peak sky. So you and can you look at any part of the sky. You can look at any kind, any part oh, yes. of the sky. I wonder how many hours I spent at this telescope. I hate to think. Yeah. It's called fullerscopes? Uh, no. The mirror was... I don't know the name mirror. We figure by a very well-known man, George Hole. Uh, the mounting made by Peter Sartori. And I went to Dudley Fuller, fullerscopes. I wanted a massive mounting for it. And he had this one which just fitted. So he put that on for me. And it works very well. It was just tailor-made for your needs. It actually was. It was sheer luck. Yeah. And you could literally sit here all night looking oh, at the I've done that many times, yes, rather. I said, yeah, I have a lot of observation, but at the moment I'm afraid it's come to an end. And what, what, what would have been some of the exciting moments you've spent here? I was mapping the moon with this, mm. found the editing there, observing Mars, the dust storms upon Mars, the spots on Saturn. Um, I'm essentially a, a, a planet man. Uh, some of the aerial stars, because in my own land, I observed as though if they wanted, uh, I'd get down to a low magnitude, but uh, mainly moon and plants. And how, how clearly can you see the moon's surface? You can imagine you'd have nine, nine, eight or nine hundred on this, you can look right into the moon. Mm. And see uh, on Mars, you see the ice caps, the red deserts, the cloud, the shifting markings there, the belts, the spots, the satellites. It's, um, it's pretty good. This is all in Patrick's back garden in Sensi, I have to say. Assisted by his protege, Owen. I'll do here, we have a second telescope. Mm -hmm. This is a refractor, a much smaller one, but it's a very good one. And this one looks new and isn't. 
The one that I see looks old and isn't. This one looks new and isn't. <laughs> made by the lens made by a man named Cook, who died long, long ago, but made the best lenses ever. Yeah, seem to depend a lot on, on old things, old uh, this is not the, the, old. the other tail, but this is not old. No, this one looks, is, looks... This is that one now. Right. This is a, a refractor. And this time, the, this time the entire roof comes off, which I won't do now, since it's very sizzling. Oh, Perspex roof slides off, yes. This is the five-inch. It's a very good one. And uh, in, relative to the other one? Quite different. This is a refractor, not so powerful. If you want to project the sun and observe the sun's eyes, you would never look direct, of course. This is the one to do it with. That's hence the silver screen there. Mm. Well, you've got a weather vane, yeah? Tell me about the weather vane. Oh, rather nice, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and a little, little uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's really good. figure on a, looking through a telescope, yes. as well as the north, south, east, west. Solar panels in the roof. Yeah. Other telescopes around here. There's one in there, the eight and a half inch. Same well, with the about half size. And finally, my dear old 12 and a half inch over here, my first big telescope that I had immediately at the end, the end of the war, over here, in the runoff shed. Hmm. I did a lot of my early work with that. So you're four, four in all out yes. in the garden? Yes. So you can't, you can't really miss, can you, <laughs> between them all? Not really. Uh, these are the weather things, and they're also at the local weather station. Mm. I'm station 53 North 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 77 North, and send them my daily weather records. <laughs> Every day? Yes. Take the week at 9 o'clock each morning. Mm. And here I find that the 12 and a half inch. Okay. Quite impressive. And what, what would you use this for? Well, that was the first big telescope I had. Mm. I did my early moon mapping with that. I wanted something a bit bigger, so I got the 15-inch. Mm. I've got a great affection for this one. So you, you still use them all? Oh, yeah, well, I used to, until this happened. There's a sundial there. That's, a, that's my trade union sundial. <laughs> it goes on strike for six months in the year when the sun goes south of the equator. That one was good, wouldn't it? Yeah. You've spent a, a long lifetime now exploring and, and um, studying the, the planets and, and writing about them. You have, you have a, a new book just out, The Star of Bethlehem. Yes, yeah, so, um, down here we're setting up a major planetarium, it's just, uh, the South Downs Planetarium, and we're doing a Christmas show. We're doing about the Star of Bethlehem, and um, we'll have a good look at this. So I've done a little book on it, 
and the various other people have too. What it was, we don't know, if anything, and how it's a little book, anyhow, we'll see how, it's, we'll see how it goes. Mm. And, and I haven't had the chance to see it yet, but is, is it just a, is it a fanciful story, or is it no, a scientific... it's an attempt to say, if there's any truth in the story of the Star of Bethlehem, uh, it's not just a nice story, can we explain it scientifically? And I've looked at the various possibilities. And briefly, what are they? Well, in my, um, my view is, it must have been something that was um, brilliant, short-lived, seen there by a few people, unexplained. My guess is it must have been possibly a couple of very bright meteors going in the same direction. But of course, that doesn't give the whole story by any means, but it's the best I can think of. Mm. When, when you, you, I heard you talking earlier, but when this would have happened was just from between, what, 2 and BC, 4 BC? BC 4 and BC 7. BC, BC 4 and BC 7, that's when Jesus uh, was born. Yes. And it wasn't a... Is, is there any possibility there was any kind of supernatural thing, or was it just a, a happening of, of a, a couple As of years? As I said when I began the book, I'm not going down that road at all. I'm saying, if there is anything there, what was it? Mm. And it wasn't a conjunction of planets as such? Any, everyone would have seen it. Mm. After all, everyone there had to go and look. And if the wise men were taken in by that, they wouldn't have been very wise. So, um, as I say, you've been you've been studying and and still writing about these um, the planets and stars and the moon, particularly. What is it that that, that drives you on? That that you, you don't even think of retiring, if that's you. I think we have the wish to find out. Not for what do I retire from? I've never worked in my life. My work and my hobby are the same things. So I never really worked, and I, why should I ever retire? I can retire from. Hmm. I don't want to. I'm doing my sky at night now for. Well, if, uh, next April I have my 45th anniversary, and I want to go on as long as I can, as long as they want me to. Which is, I think, uh, is, a, is a record, isn't it? You're in the Guinness Book of Records. Is the oh, it's had me for years. Yeah. I was in there, I've been there three times. I also sent the slowest inland telegram in history. We hit the Citadel, which is four miles, so it took three months. And I beat my dearly sent one from Bolton to Oval. It took four years, because there are no telegrams now, so I can't get that one back. <laughs> was this a deliberate attempt to get into the Guinness oh, Book no, of Records? Not no, not <laughs> Took three months to, to go. What was it? Four miles. Yes. Four miles. So you you you, you obviously, and as you say, this is this is not your work at all. It is it, is your hobby. What yeah. what can you say to to someone like me? I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing I would have. I'd love to take up maybe in retirement to to to, to study the stars a bit more. To to someone starting out or to a young child like you were at six years of age. Thought I did. First thing. Do some reading and get the general background. That's the first thing to do. Then don't go for a telescope. Go out at night and learn your way around the sky. It doesn't take long. The stars don't move compared with each other. Learn your way around the sky. And then invest in a pair of binoculars and have a look around. If you're still interested then, think about a telescope. But meanwhile, join an astronomical society. And there are plenty of them now. There are plenty here and in Ireland too. There are two very good ones in Ireland. Mm. So certainly I should join that. Right in anyway, and go on from there. And of course, as an amateur, you don't need any definite qualifications, and you can spend as much or a little time on it as you like. And amateurs can and do very useful work. Because professionally, you must take a degree. So that's, that's, that's another story. Mm. But of course, also, you, you're. This is probably one of the attractions of living in a place like Celsius. I mean, if, if you live in a big city, it's it's very difficult to study the stars. It's the light, light pollution. pollution. Light pollution really is becoming a menace now. No question about it. Say, the only answer then is um. Either a portable telescope or going to the countryside.
Now, you, you mentioned uh, how the, you had, you still have the first uh, telescope that you ever got. You also have out in your, your wonderful cluttered study uh, two things that caught my eye, a cuckoo clock and a typewriter. The cuckoo clock was my sixth birthday present. My mother said, what do you want for birthday? I said, money, I would so like a cuckoo clock. In our little car, we drove to London, we parked in Oxford Street, we bought the clock, I think it was 30 shillings, drove further down, parked again, had tea and came home. Wouldn't have been popular now. Uh, the typewriter, um, I acquired that when I was eight years old. I'd had my grandfather 1892 when I still got. This one here was acquired when I was uh, eight years old. Now, at that stage, my Bible was Pickering's book about the moon. Totally unattainable, was punched many a year, couldn't get it. But um, I wanted that book, and I wanted it badly. I couldn't get it. And a friend of ours, a fellow of the RAS, and borrowed that book. And I had this 60,000-word book in my possession for three months. And I remember thinking in my eight-year-old way, now, if I type this book out, I'll have the book I want. I'll be able to type, and I'll be able to spell. And it worked like a charm. I began ding, ding. But then I was touch typing, and I've got that book now. Do you still have the, you still have the manuscript you typed? I have indeed. Yeah. How long did it take you? Uh, well, when I started, I started very slowly, you see, but um, by the end I was touch typing. It didn't take all that long when I got into it. Mm. But um, I still type with two fingers. But I say before my hand went, I typed accurately at ninety words a minute. Not so good now, unfortunately. Mm. A wonder, wonderful story. And anything else out there that we should know about that that's been there almost as long as yourself? Uh, the typewriter, certainly. The cuckoo clock, certainly. My desk I acquired fairly early when I was a boy. I remember that one, too. Mm. But um, those are the main things, I think. Some of the books, of course. Because when I found that first book, I went down to the second-hand shop and spent my six months pocket money on another book. I got that, and I still got that one, too. So mm. it accumulated from there, really. Do and also, know? when I was uh, or about nine, or less than that, um, my father gave me a lovely old chess set. didn't take much. I've got that chess set now, and I've played a lot with that, because I was a, I was a serious player once. And do, do you still have that, the, the first book you bought? I have indeed, most certainly. I've got them both in there. The one I found, The Story of the Solar System, mm. the one I read first, and The Companion One, I've got those two, and the one I first one I bought too. Do they, do they read very dated? Do they look very dated now? They are obviously, well, I can show you, they're obviously very dated. On the other hand, they were very good books at the time, and they are good fundamentally. Oh, yes. After all, that one published over a hundred years ago now. Mm. Obviously, I mean, they say you've come a long way since then, but the, the basics are there, and it certainly taught me. And you have a wonderful collection of books. Are, are, are all the books to do with astronomy? Virtually all, I think. I have some cricket books, too, but virtually astronomy. And they're all been very thoroughly read, except I've been given one or two in languages that I can't read. I mean, I can't read German, for example. If it's a language I can read, fair enough, but one or two I can't. Patrick Moore, it's been a great pleasure to talk with you. Well, nice here to see you. you. And uh, I hope you'll continue for many, many more years to... Well, I'm 78, and I, I can't have a lot longer, but I'll do my best anyway, and there are plenty of people coming after me. There's one sitting over there now. And one other choice of music? The March, Harry's Comet, written for the Harry's Comet Society. A society which has no aims, no objects, and no ambitions. It is the only <laughs> completely useless society in the world, apart from the European Parliament, of course.